to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. Sermon text tonight comes from verses 9 through 11, and I'll read just those for us this evening. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. We'll end reading there, and let's pray one final time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed it to us. You've given it to us. We thank you for this final book in your word this revelation of Jesus Christ. And as we reflect on these few verses this evening, might you open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We noted in our our Sunday school, introducing the book of Revelation, that Revelation has a cyclical pattern, meaning it will discuss one theme and it will move on and discuss us, us, the same theme, but, but using different uh, symbolism. And the, the point is, usually something is added, but we're, we're sort of looking at a diamond from different perspectives. And as we come to Revelation 1, we've already seen that. This repetition of this revelation comes to John, that goes to the churches. We've seen something of this uh, reflection on God's character. We've also seen this commission to write, and, and it circles back a couple times in chapter 1. And, and what we have focused on thus far is John's, is the focus on the author of Revelation, the divine author, God. And we've reflected on much of his character as revealed in these first verses. And so tonight we'll circle back and, and look a little bit at the first recipient of this revelation, John the Apostle. And so we get a little bit more of his biography tonight, and we get more of his commission explicitly to write this book. So I have three headings as we come to this and and discuss John's biography and commission. First, his personal context. His personal context. Who is uh, this author, this John, in Revelation? We, we see the name John come up three times now. In verse uh, 1 of this revelation, it's, it's his servant John. In verse 4, John to the seven churches. In verse 9, now today, John, uh, your brother. Now, apocalyptic literature was generally pseudonymous. You, don't, you would write in the name of another person that has been long dead. And, and people know you're writing in someone else's name. And so there are apocalypses of Enoch and Elijah and Abraham written way past the time that they lived. 
Uh, But this is where Revelation differs from uh, other apocalyptic literature. It's not pseudonymous. It is, uh, we get the author's name here. This is John. Uh, This is John the Apostle. And the early church testifies to this. And and, and plus, if you were going to write in someone else's name, you wouldn't usually write it when they're living and can verify whether they wrote that or not. So the early church witnesses that this is John the Apostle. This is one of Jesus' twelve disciples. This is the man who laid his head on Jesus' breast. This is the man who was given charge of Jesus' mother at his death. This is John, the author of the Gospel of John and the other three letters that go by his name. It's believed that John the Apostle, uh, later on in life, uh, moved to Asia Minor and was a pastor at the church at Ephesus. But interesting here, he does not refer to him himself as an apostle at all, which is strange. One, uh, that's another reason we believe it is John the Apostle, because he doesn't need to assert who he is these churches in Asia know their pastor, this, the, uh, especially in Ephesus. They know this apostle. They don't need him to reassert that. And this is a different context. He's not trying to assert his uh, apostolic authority in any way. Different from, say, the book of Galatians, where, where Paul comes in, guns ablaze, and Paul, apostle of Jesus, not from the will of man, but from God. So in that book, Paul is asserting his apostolic authority, but we don't have that here. Rather, John gives rather humble titles for himself. In the first verse, he calls himself a servant or a slave of Jesus. And in our text tonight, he says, your brother... He's sympathetic, as we'll see, to these believers' struggles. He's in the same boat as them. He is sympathizing with them. And this marks his godly leadership. He doesn't lord it over his people. He is not coming in to tell them what they need to do in a crass way. But he's humbly and sympathetically identifying with these sheep. That he himself uh, is a partner in, in many of their struggles. And that's what he says here. We'll, we'll move on here. Your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. And so we see uh, here this word partner. We could translate that participant, partaker, companion, uh, those are all fine translations. The point is, I'm sharing what, what you are going through. I'm an equal partner. I'm an equal companion. I'm an equal participant in the following three things. And the following three things are tribulation, kingdom, and patient endurance. And all three of those are, are further qualified by that term, in Jesus. And in the original text, it's clear that uh, that word, uh, in Jesus goes with all three of these words. Tribulation in Jesus, kingdom in Jesus, patient endurance in Jesus. So what are these three things? We'll look at them. John is a partner in tribulation. 
or affliction, we could translate that. Distress, oppression, suffering, trouble. That's in Jesus. These are the afflictions, the troubles, the tribulations that that come as being a follower of Jesus. John says, "I, I share in those. And these afflictions could be either external, outside of yourself. It could be persecution in some way, hostility towards the gospel. It could be internal trouble, internal distress uh, that comes as as being a follower of Jesus. So this term refers to all the trouble that comes to a person because of his being in Christ. And, and these churches that John is writing to, the, these churches share in much tribulation. If, you, if you're there in, in chapter 1, look over in chapter 2, the church in Smyrna, verse 9 of chapter 2. Jesus says, I know your tribulation, same word, and your poverty and the slander of those who say they are Jews but are, are, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus says, I know your tribulation. I know you're being uh, pressured by these uh, people who call themselves Jews. That was a particular struggle. They were being slandered by these Jews to the local authority. They were in poverty, physical poverty. That is a distress. That is a trouble. And Jesus tells them in verse 10 that actually they're going to have more distress. Some are going to be thrown into prison. That's another distress, trouble, tribulation. And he calls them to be faithful unto death, which means some likely were going to be killed as a result of their imprisonment. We see in the church of Pergamum there was a man named Antipas who who did die as a result. So this is all sorts of... Uh, persecution, affliction, trouble, distress that happens on, on the church. And John tells this, these churches, I'm with you. I too have suffered for Christ. And, and as we'll see, John is in exile while he's writing this, while he's receiving this vision. John, John himself lost his own brother, James, because of the gospel. Remember, James is beheaded early on by Herod. We see in John's epistles, there, there's, there are false teachers that are resisting him, resisting his authority as an apostle. They were corrupting the churches that he loved. So this, this John suffered much for Christ, and, and he identifies with this church. I am your partner. I am your fellow participant in the trouble, in the affliction, in the tribulation that are in Jesus. But he also says, I'm your partner in the kingdom, which is in Jesus. We learned from verse 6, a part of Jesus' work is that he made us a kingdom, priest to his God. That the saints are not just marginalized victims, Endlessly suffering till death. Uh, no, we're, we're more than conquerors. We're the real victors in this world. Because after this life, we inherit the kingdom of God forever, which never ends. 
That we are fellow participants, not just in affliction, but in this eternal kingdom of God. And so John says, we're fellow participants in the kingdom of God. And here's an apostle who is exiled, who is under persecution, and he's writing to a church that faces similar persecution, and in some ways worse persecution than he has faced, death. And he wants to remind them that they are part of the kingdom of God, that the Roman Empire is exercising its authority greatly, and it may be exercising its authority greatly against us and against the kingdom of God. But remember, we are fellow partakers in the kingdom. And this is a kingdom that will last forever. Thirdly, he's a, he's a partner, he's a participant He's a companion in the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Endurance is sort of the rope between tribulation and the kingdom. That that the means of moving from, from suffering to kingdom is endurance. That you, you, you endure the, the struggles of this life and you inherit the kingdom at death. Greg Beale says this, This is a formula for kingship. Faithful endurance through tribulation is the means by which one reigns in the present with Jesus. And I'll add, and we will reign also in the future with him if we endure now. So we'll see throughout Revelation, the repeated theme is that saints persevere. Saints endure. Saints conquer. This we'll see this when we get into the, revel, uh, the the letters to the churches in chapters two and three. Jesus calls the churches to overcome or to conquer. And so the the point is, saints amidst all of the pressure, amidst all of the affliction, amidst all the trouble, both inside us and outside us that come upon us, we endure that. And even if it means our own death, because that death is not a loss, but a victory. And And the saints that endure will reign with Christ. Flip over with me to chapter 20. This is the most controversial passage in the book in terms of interpretation, but we can see some things here quite easily that all agree on. Look look at verse 4. Revelation 20. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed, And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and for those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their heads. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So whoever these saints are that come to life, they all share something in common. They did not bow to the beast. They did not forsake Christ, they held fast to his name, even if it meant losing their own head, and then they reign with Christ. And 
And so John says, uh, I'm with you in this patient endurance that is necessary if, if we are going to persevere. This is amazing for this apostle to write this to this church. I am your brother and partner in tribulation, kingdom, and patient endurance. Can you imagine a prosperity teacher saying this today? The, the, the big names, you know, we, we, we would think the apostles. These, these, and so, in our day, you know, the people on TV, the preachers on TV, are they saying, hey, I'm your brother, I, I'm with you in affliction, in poverty, and, and endurance. No, they, they say, have faith like me and you won't have any trouble. You won't need to endure anything. You, you'll, you'll just have a, a life of bliss and ease. But, but John, the real, the real uh, faithful follower of Christ, reminds this church and he reminds us what is to be expected reality for the Christian. And it is not Uh, health and wealth and prosperity. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. Jesus said, if they hated me, the master, are they not going to hate you? Paul says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised when you have trouble and affliction in Jesus. Don't be surprised when you're persecuted for your faith. It's to be expected in this world. So if you're partaking of sorrow and suffering and struggle and pain in Christ Jesus, then you are a fellow participant and partner in that affliction which is part and parcel of being a Christian. It could be external persecution at your work to to give in to to whatever agenda is is contrary to the word of God. It could be your own internal angst and and confliction over your struggle with sin or the sorrows of dealing with sin in your life and in other people's life. All of that is part and parcel of being a Christian. So, so we're not different than any other believer. This, if you are experiencing trials in life, that is normal. But remember that we're also fellow participants in the kingdom. That we're, we're not just hopeless. We, we endure and we suffer with a purpose to gain a greater goal. I think an example of this came from the... <clears throat> This man's name is Hugh Mackle. He was one of the Scottish Covenanters, if you're familiar with that part of church history, the the forebearers of the Reformed Presbyterian Church. And so in the beginning of this persecution in Scotland of these Covenanters, some some men were arrested and they were sentenced to death, and, and Hugh Mackle was one of the first. He was 26 years old and a preacher, of the gospel. And on the scaffold, he said this. These were his dying words. Farewell, father and mother, friends and relations. 
Farewell the world and all its delights. Farewell meat and drink. Farewell sun, moon, and stars. Welcome God and Father. Welcome sweet Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. Welcome, blessed Spirit of grace and God of all consolation. Welcome, glory. Welcome, eternal life. And welcome, death. And with that, he died. That's affliction. But that's endurance. And that man gained the kingdom. And so too do we who persevere in our affliction to gain the kingdom. So that was the personal context. Secondly, the unique circumstances. What is John's reason for being on Patmos? This is his place where he writes this. He says, I was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And so throughout Revelation, this phrase, word of God and testimony of Jesus, usually refers to those who suffer for their faith. We saw this in Revelation chapter 20 there. Those those souls were beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. And so uh, we take from this that John uh, is, is here because of he's suffering persecution. He was exiled here. Some people will want to say that John was on a missionary endeavor here, but we see he says, I'm here for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, and that signifies suffering for those things. So he was exiled on the, uh, for some reason. Uh, he must have... Uh, as an apostle, I'm sure, got some attention in Ephesus, and the leaders there had decided to send him to Patmos. Uh, some people will, will say that, that John was, was sent, it was a penal colony, and John was sentenced to work the mines there. But there, there is no evidence that there was ever mines on the island of Patmos and that it was used for a penal colony. Rather, what we do know is that Patmos was used to banish uh, political prisoners. And so other people lived on the island in, in a normal life, but it was also used to banish political prisoners. This island is about 40 miles southwest of Miletus in Asia Minor. It's only about seven and a half miles in its length. Its widest part is five miles. It sort of has an hourglass shape. And so the center of the island is only 400 yards wide. It was part of two important merchant ship routes. And so if you lived on the island, that was probably your means of income, is participating in this merchant trade. And so uh, this island would have been lived on by others, as I said. And we're not told why John was specifically banished here. At this point, there's no empire-wide policy for dealing with Christians. And so some pockets in the empire would have intense persecution. At, at other pockets, they would have very little just because of the local leaders. There was no imperial policy at this point. And so, for instance, Antipas is put to death in Pergamum, but John is exiled. And you would think John is, 
It's a higher figure, and so why, why not put him to death? Well, it's, it's how the political leader in that city dealt with you. And so uh, John is banished here. It's likely not a lifelong sentence. But nevertheless, here he is, separated from his church. He's likely not alone. Maybe he has a companion or two. But, but most of the people would not have been following him to this island of banishment. And so this, this situation, this unique circumstance, verifies what, what John says. I, I, I know what it is to suffer for Christ. And I know what it is to have to endure trials and sufferings for Christ. So he's on Patmos. And we're told that he is in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. So what is John doing on the Lord's Day? And, and this is by way of deduction. We're not told this explicitly. But, but what is he doing? I take it he's worshiping the Lord on the Lord's Day. And as John is, is partaking of regular worship on the Lord's Day, this vision comes to him. So even in exile, even separated from a normal congregation, John is at worship. The the difficult circumstances do not hinder his worship. The excuses he could have given are many. Well, I don't have a church service to go to here. How am I supposed to how am I supposed to worship? The, the, the locals here, they work on Sunday, and I gotta find a means to make some income around here while I'm banished. So I, I might as well work too. Once again, we're, I'm speculating here, it's not definitive, but likely John is struggling six days a week working hard to, to try to support himself as an older man. But he trusts his God enough that he takes his word seriously and ceases these activities on the Lord's Day and focuses on the worship of his God. And God uses that simple obedience uh, to do a great work on this unique Lord's Day that John is at worship. <clears throat> so in, in, one, in many ways, this is preaching to the choir here on a, on a Sunday night, but I think this begs a, a particular application to us. Don't despise the Lord's Day. Don't despise the, the corporate worship with the people of God. And it takes faith to give God a whole day. And so the point is we come together to worship God on His appointed day, no matter how inconvenient it is and no matter how countercultural that is. So if you are committed to the worship of the Lord on the Lord's day, be encouraged here. God blesses that. And we have to resolve our commitment to this because it's very easy for that to slide, right? You get busy. Uh, I was tired. I, you know, the game went late last night. I, I, I need some sleep, so I'll just, you know, my afternoon nap went longer. I won't worry about the evening service tonight. We're all tired. My toe hurts. I'll just zoom tonight. 
by the way, and I, I think you know this, you know, live streaming is not an equal opportunity worship experience. It is a blessing uh, for those who are physically unable to be here. It can be a means of, of outreach to people who would not come into our services, but it is not a replacement for the assembled people of God on the Lord's Day. Some people say, it's just hard. It's hard. Two services a day, whole day. We have brothers and sisters in in other nations that they, they they are putting their lives at risk coming to worship. They're putting their livelihood at, at risk. And we could, we could uh, experience a little inconvenience for God. Because the point is, here is, an, uh, here is an apostle in exile under unique circumstances that make corporate worship dis- difficult, but it's the Lord's day and he's worshiping. And God meets him in a very special way on this Lord's day. And God meets us on the Lord's Day in a special way. We might not be big. We might not look like much. It might not seem that that anything extraordinary is going on here on a weekly basis. But God blesses the worship of his people. So we should come weekly expecting a blessing from God. And, and sometimes that is simple blessings, and sometimes God does show up in extraordinary ways. But we miss out if we're not here. John says, I'm in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now I take this to mean more than just what we would think of being filled with the Spirit that remember, John is, is taking on the role of an Old Testament prophet. He is a prophet himself. And the prophets of old were, were taken up by the Spirit in, in visions of heaven. And so that is what John uh, is doing here. In fact, one uh, text I want us to look at is in Ezekiel, uh, chapter 2. Two texts in Ezekiel here. That we'll see that John patterns much of his book after the book of Ezekiel, as with other prophets, and I think we have something mirroring Ezekiel's experience as a prophet. Ezekiel 2.2, this is after that great vision in chapter 1 of, of God on his throne. And he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me, Sorry, and he spoke to me. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. He is filled with the Spirit, and he's able to to hear uh, this interpreter of this vision for him. And and look at verse uh, chapter three, verse twelve. The Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me the voice of a great earthquake. And John says. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And so he's mirroring the same language that we get in Ezekiel of being caught up in the Spirit and hearing a loud voice and and turning and seeing. And so John is taking on uh, this prophetic role here. He is filled with the Spirit in a normal sense as he is worshiping, but he is is in the Spirit in in a prophetic sense in this 
text here. So John is, is about his normal worship on the Lord's day, and it is in that time that the Lord meets him and gives him prophetic utterance. So once again, just one more specific and similar application. If you, if you want to meet God, if you want God in your life, if you want him to speak to you, if you want his spirit to, to, wor- to work in your life, don't neglect the worship of the Lord's day. God blesses that, and he will bless your obedience in that. It's not out of a slavish obedience. We come as, as a delight, expecting God to do what he promised for us to do. How many times can we testify to God meeting us in worship? He convicts us of our sin, or he encourages us, or sometimes we just need some rerouting from all of our foolish thinking we get in our minds. And he gives us his perspective, and he encourages us on his way. And I'm sure... Many of you here who, who have been committed to this over years of your life can testify to God's blessing it is to you. So what a blessing the Lord's Day is, and God does bless it when we prioritize it in our lives. Third and final here, it's specific charge. John's specific charge. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, he, he heard a voice, a loud voice behind him like a trumpet. Now we're going to see here, and I'll just by way of note here, there'll be a pattern in Revelation where John will hear something and he'll turn and see something. So he'll hear something and describe it, and then he'll turn and, and see something and describe it. And what he hears and sees are the same thing, but his description of it differs. And so that, that, that will be clear as we, we get next week into the vision of the Son of Man. But that will become important for interpreting other things later on. And so he hears this trumpet. We, you know, we think of a trumpet. It's loud. It's, it has a, a, a regal feel to it. You, you think royalty. You think of a, a, a war call. John, do I hear something behind me? What, what? No, he, it's, it's like a trumpet. I, I can't mistake this voice that is speaking to me. And he's told, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. His commission is to write all that he sees. We've seen this before. He is to faithfully transmit this to these seven churches. And, and he is the instrument of this revelation to those churches and by implication to, to us. And this is a reminder that what we have here is God's word. This came from God through his prophet to us. And this comes out at the end of this book in chapter two, 22. In verse 18, there's a warning given. 
I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. So this is the word of God. Do not add to it. Do not take away from it. This is echoed in Deuteronomy 4.2, where they are told, Moses says, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. So John, just as much authority here in this book as Moses in Deuteronomy, is emphasizing its divine origin. This book is from God. And this is a reminder for us that we must not tamper with God's Word. He has given us His book. He has chosen His instruments to write His his book with His guidance. And we don't have the freedom to change it. I saw recently a headline of uh, Bishop of York or Archbishop of York or or whatever was saying that the, the Lord's Prayer is problematic. Because it calls God Father, and that could be problematic to people uh, with abuse of fathers. And, you know, the concept of God as Father may be difficult for someone who has had a, a bad earthly experience with their father. But the problem is not with the Bible, and we should change it. The, the problem is with us and our world and our sin. We must take the Word of God as it is and not change it one bit. So many are trying to soften or, or, or change certain scripture teaching today. And this is not our freedom. We must take God at his word. And we must believe what it says no matter how unpopular it is. It has been faithfully transmitted to us and it, and it is our job to faithfully transmit it to the next generation. So this is John's commission and by implication this is our commission. We're not writing scripture but we are preserving and t- transmitting scripture to the next generation. So that was his specific charge. So here, here in closing we have John's commission. John, a faithful brother, in exile because of his testimony to Christ. He's continuing to hold fast to Christ, even in exile. He's continuing to worship God as prescribed by his God. And it's in that context of simple faithfulness that God gives John a vision like no one has ever seen in the history of the world. And John has faithfully preserved that for us to read and to study and to obey so, so praise God for this servant's faithfulness and praise God that, that by His grace He has given this uh, to us and, and we can read and understand and obey as well. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your servant John whom You used to write this revelation We're thankful that amidst of exile and persecution, he did not uh, waver and give up. That by your grace, he persevered and you used him as a faithful servant uh, for the advancement of the gospel in the world. We we thank you uh, that you are faithful 
to bless what you promised to bless, the worship of the Lord's day, the obedience to your word in simple, ordinary life, Lord. May we trust you and may we look to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing hymn tonight will be 573, hymn 573 in the red, Am I a Soldier?